0: There's some dangerous large uh, carnivore out there. I saw that bird kick a young deer off the road and fly away.
1: And uh, it was just about getting dark, and we started panicking, running down the bridge,
2: not really having any clue. of storing rocks in our vicinity, good-sized rocks.
1: And uh, I stopped long enough to get a 3.7 out of my backpack and looked back, and that's when I saw it. I saw one.
0: actually attacked two railroad workers, uh, killed livestock, you know, just a lot of weird stuff that was going on. along with my good friend and consummate Bigfoot researcher, Shane Hardcore corson Um, We are sponsored by the Sasquatch Coffee Company. Uh, You can find that if you check it out online. Uh, You look up Sasquatch Coffee and like our Facebook page. And Sasquatch Coffee, have you tried it yet? Shane, how are you today?
3: Fantastic, as usual. Doing great. Uh, Glad to be here and uh, looking forward to the show with our good friend Chuck.
0: We're having a little bit. I apologize. Uh, blog Talk seems to be having some issues with allowing us to get into the chat room, so
3: um, we apologize for that. Yeah, unfortunately. That's that's uh, Blog Talk for you. And uh, tonight, I don't think there will be any chat.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we'll just be chatting amongst ourselves. That's right, yeah. Well, well, uh, uh, I didn't want to address something that's come up. They're starting to promote. uh, Matt Johnson is promoting uh, his habituation conference. Uh, It's coming up April 22nd through the 24th. And, yes, I did agree to speak at this conference. Um, I want, want to be clear that I am the token APER, and it is Washington State, and I mean token with an E, not token, like spoken token, but uh, uh, it does not in any way mean that I agree with, you know, I am not a person who feels that we're dealing with something that's paranormal. Um, In fact, I will address that in my presentation, so anyway, I know that there's, been some concerns that, uh, in fact, I had a little uh, conversation with a, a gentleman who was was uh, felt the need to attack all the, the speakers, including Bob Gimlin, uh, referring to him as a hoaxer, which I I do not agree with. So, right, um, we are, uh, you know, people say haters got to hate, and, and uh, uh, people have asked me why? You know, why did you? agree to uh, participate in in this particular conference. And I am telling people that, uh, you know, Matt Johnson wooed me until I said yes. So that's a little pun, a little woo pun. So anyway, (laughs) with us, we have uh, a friend of ours back um, that has been on the show before, uh, Chuck Matson, who is is an active field researcher up in Washington State, and uh, we're excited to hear what Matt's been up to. He uh, has been conducting a 14 game cam uh, project, which is ongoing. Uh, they they've had some uh, you know they're have an ongoing research area where they've uh, continued to do audio uh, and record interesting things that, while in their camp, I know that he and and Ben Free uh, had a, something, we'll we'll have to let Chuck tell us about it, but they uh, felt like they had uh, some large um, animals really close to them while they were setting up cameras, and as well as um, on New Year's Day, he was out with his family snowshoeing and had some, heard some tree knocks in their research area. So uh, I know, Shane, you were out a little bit this weekend. How'd
3: that go? Well, I I went everywhere from the coast all the way, uh, you know, the Tillman coast, all the way up to uh, Mount Hood. I was uh, all over the place, uh, you know, uh, checking uh, trail cameras, placing trail cameras, uh, getting out in the snow and getting out in the nasty uh, wet weather. But uh, anytime in the woods or the mountains is always a fun time. And so, uh, yeah, you know, it was good, good exercise. So I was a little bit everywhere. Um, not my usual. Usually I like to, if I'm going to go out during the week or the weekends or spend a couple of days out somewhere, it's usually in one spot. But I had a lot to do. Uh, I go on vacation here in a couple of weeks, going to be heading to see my folks in San Diego. So I uh, wanted to get some stuff dialed in, set up before I head out.
0: Awesome.
3: Did, so did you have yeah. anything
0: happen while you were out in the field? Any questionable or interesting Activity? My
3: uh, yeah, my my time up at Malhood Hood really, I just I, I happened to see a couple of really uh, neat areas, uh, having done some hiking out there, in a kind of a different area that I really want to explore and spend some uh, nights out there and days doing some hiking around. Uh, however, when I was in uh, the Tillamook area, I did uh, venture out a little more remote than I usually head out and um, decided to go check out some um, th- this kind of hilly area and did get a knock i don't know what it was it wasn't a gunshot it wasn't anything like that it Did get some sort of knock just the one don't know what it was didn't see anything do it just solid sound like you know just the classic solid uh wood on wood uh, but, uh just the one and i i sat there for close to 20 minutes waiting um nothing else so not sure what that was but uh that was the only thing of interest uh, you know, out there, there was uh, so, still some snow in some of the areas out there, and uh, it was, it was, a, there was a lot of rain. It was, it was pouring down. So, uh, other than that, nothing, nothing to uh, scream home about, but still a good time out and uh, questionable stuff happening, so. Well,
0: it's been, I'm actually wanting to get back up in the woods. It seems like I've been off, uh, off track for a little bit, so, but I look forward to getting out there and, uh, hanging out i know that uh, uh our good friend larry has hurt his calf this week so um i'm not sure what that will do in terms of uh um limiting his hiking mm-hmm. so uh, our best to larry and hope that he gets well soon um, yes no but uh um we had a gentleman that that uh was near and dear to a lot of people in in the Bigfoot world. I I was not familiar with Smokey, but uh, I I oh, like to wish his family and right. I'd like to wish his family and friends our condolences. Uh, uh, he was a very active in uh, Arkansas, of course, the folk monster and uh, yeah.
3: They, it's always tough when you uh,
0: people in the go ahead.
3: I was going to say, yeah, he's best known for The Legend of Boggy Creek. Um,
4: uh, Yeah, you know, he
3: wrote books and stuff and and, uh, was very active, uh, knew a lot of people, uh, cared for this guy, knew him well, and super guy, and he passed away, unfortunately. So, yeah, our condolences to his family and his friends and those that knew him best. uh, Lost another good one today, or uh, actually yesterday, I believe, and so... uh, yeah, our condolences with the friends and family. And well, with I'm in. that, Gunner,
1: I yeah, was going to say go we ahead. have
3: our guest Chuck here. Do you want to pull him on board now? Let's do it. All right. Hello, Chuck? Hey, good afternoon, guys. Good afternoon.
0: Hi, right, Chuck.
2: How about those poor Seahawks, huh?
0: <laughs> oh, brutal. <laughs> yeah, I did I did watch that game and and did um, I was rooting for them, but, you know, they dug a pretty big hole there. Little yeah. hard to get out of. So they At made a valiant
2: effort. They made it exciting the second half.
0: They, that they did.
2: They gave you hope. It's kind so, of like <laughs> finding a partial <laughs> footprint or something. You have that
0: hope.
3: <laughs>
1: something bigger, <Yeah>. you know.
3: <laughs> Good analogy.
0: So Chuck, tell for the folks that have aren't familiar with Chuck Matson and what tell us a little bit of, about yourself and, and uh what your your uh ongoing about your ongoing investigations.
2: Sure. Um well I I'm a self employed concrete contractor. Um I got a son who's currently in college, so that keeps me working full time and taking very little time off. Um pay for college tuition but what time I do get off I beat feet right to the woods and try to spend as much time out there as possible even if it's only for you know four or five hours in an afternoon um, that's about how long it takes to get to one of my camera areas check cameras and then you know get out maybe an hour or two after dark and when I can stay longer of course I, I do take my camper or my GM or my jimmy and sleep inside of it for the weekend so that's, you know, that's mm-hmm. kind of it. Work and uh squatch. <laughs> so what Chuck, what
0: uh, got you into squatching in the first place?
2: Um, well, you know, it's a similar you know, story that I, I shared last time I was on your show. I you know, as a kid always liked um Bigfoot and was fascinated with all those you know, early shows in search of you know, the and E specials. Um, my parents owned some property in Ashford and uh, I, I invited all my employees to come on a uh, camp out for the weekend on that property, and so we decided we were going to go for a walk one evening and uh, went around behind uh, you know, the old logging gates, the yellow logging gates on private land. Um, you can't take mortar, mortar vehicles, but you can walk in there. Um, so we went walking along the Nisqually River, and uh, one of the wives of my employees um, said, you know, what's that standing in the road? And it's dark, and as we all look forward, because we're all kind of talking and looking around, but this time, and you know, we looked forward when she said that, and there was this tall, upright, black silhouette in the darkness standing in the road. Couldn't really get a, you know, good look at it, because this was um, 1145 at night, and um, when we all focused on that spot, it, it must have known we were watching it, because then it stepped off the road into the trees, and then made its way kind of, you know, closer to the river, so um, that really um, sparked my interest because is my parents' property, this is a place I can easily come to, and there might be Bigfoots around it, and so I um, just always had that kind of interest and, you know, slowly but surely started to spend more time hiking, more time exploring those woods. Um, my wife and I actually recorded what we believe to be perhaps a Bigfoot, you know, back in August of 2013. And and so um, from that point to now, I I, I feel I do serious research where I go out Mm -hmm. specifically looking and specifically looking for sign and setting up cameras and Mm -hmm. overnight audio research and buying multiple parabolic mics and setting them up. And, you know, I I hadn't done that before, but from 2013 to now, I've really stepped up my efforts to try to get some answers, at least in my own head, what's going on out there.
3: Chuck, would you consider yourself a tracker, by the way? I mean, uh, I I believe you used to hunt, you no longer hunt, but are you a pretty good tracker, and and those that you work with, are they good at tracking things?
2: Well, you know, I'm starting to learn to track better. I mean, you know, I, I used to go hunt with my dad and my brother, and you can always see you know the deer sign you can see when deer have gone through an area. you can see when elk have gone through an area um but now that I've been trying to study what habitat areas might be suitable for a bigfoot, um I have now probably in the last year and a half paid more attention to the ground um more of the foliage break breakings that are happening, not just a tree break but you know ferns and which way they've been down i I've now been able to start tracking bear. Um, a lot better. I've never seen bear tracks as much as I have in the last year and a half, and um, so I'm, I'm paying attention more to when bigger things go through the woods and when those bigger things mess with stumps or downfall. And um, I, I found what I believe to be either a bear or a cougar den here a few weeks ago. Just follow this trail you know, right to it, and um, I didn't want to get too close to investigate because it was before dark and. There might have been something in there so um i did i did put some extra game cameras around there so i can see what's going on yeah but,
3: um, one, one of the part, oh go ahead
2: i'd say but you know as far as tracking you know those those you know experiences help you to kind of pay you know better attention to the ground because like i say you're deer hunting or elk hunting you know the hoods are specific shape and their antlers make a specific damage at a at a certain height, you know, and mm-hmm. so you kinda see that. I mean I, I think everybody's gonna uh, seen those things, but the um paying attention to where something's been foraging, where something's um, you know, moved uh, log downfalls, whether whether for their boredom or maybe they're looking for rodents or something in it, you know, I'm starting to uh see and understand that when before I could I just walk right past stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah.
3: And it's it's very important when you're involved in this research to to uh learn uh what's out there, you know, that is known and 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 see the the signs of it. Uh you get a better idea of why Sasquatch could be in these areas or why they would be there. And uh it's, you know, it's one of those things, you know, they're really it's another, one of those things where you're constantly learning and and bettering yourself and understanding and reading tracks you know you could find a track well what was you know what was that you know where was that deer going or that coo or bear what were they doing here why were they here and uh one of the fortunate things for us here in the pacific northwest is the seasons i believe because uh we get a lot of rain up here and it's uh you can find some fantastic impressions uh both you know even during the summer months even um But, uh, you know, one of the joys for me is the winter months, because I love going out in the snow and look for uh, tracks, impressions, and stuff, and and you can find them if you know where to look uh, in the right places.
2: Oh, yeah. You know, the last uh, couple weeks, we've had snow in our research area, and so there's um, a couple of areas, known areas, for, you know, swampy and wetlands, Um, and I like to, you know, walk the edges of those to look and see if there's any traffic going in and out of them, and... Yeah, I took so many pictures of, you know, maybe Bigfoot tracks. And I say maybe because none of them had good toe detail. And, um, you yeah, know, I was kind of excited about that because I, I, it definitely didn't look like hunters had been through there or other hikers or poachers because, you know, there are those things out in the woods. Um, but the rain and the meltout, because out here, you know, it rained so much the last couple of weeks. And, um, you know, it's hard to tell how how melted out the tracks got and how much stuff fell from trees into those tracks, you know, kind of changing the shape of the tracks. So I didn't get really excited, but I can tell, you know, something's been um, going in and out this particular wetland area from the hills. So
1: Mm -hmm.
3: another spot I put uh, multiple game cameras at. Yeah. Do you consider yourself a a year-round sort of researcher? You know, I I consider myself that because I go out, you know, no matter what the weather conditions are in the time of year. But a lot of uh, people involved with this sort of stuff, whether it's cryptids or sasquatch, they, a good majority of them, not everybody, but a good majority of them seem to kind of fall out, like, oh, it's it's wintertime, uh, I'm going to wait till spring, uh, season's over. <laughs> right.
2: Yeah, I consider myself year-round. Um, the, the only time that makes it harder for me to uh, go out squatching is um, – during high school football season, because I, I do coach high school football, and, um, you know, those Friday nights then are locked up, um, you know, between September and October, and I try to uh, then get out on Saturdays, you know, so I only get these kind of one days, and then Sunday we, we meet for film and, and kind of choose up your weekend. So, uh, yeah. you know, but, but luckily, you know, I, I belong to um,
3: a little group out
2: here in Graham, Eatonville area. Bigfoot ops, you know Ben Freed runs that, and so um, when I'm not out there, he's out there. So there's always a presence of, of one of us out in the woods, and we can kind of collaborate notes, and um, you know we text each other during the week if we heard something, seen something, you know show each other the pictures and pass recordings back and forth. So, but when it's not high school football season, you know from no, late November, because our high school's made the playoffs every year, I've been there. Um, then I'm I'm hot and heavy into it. So, you know, right after Mm -hmm. late buck season, all the way through the next August, I go, you know, at least two weekends a month for overnighters and then multiple five- or six-hour excursions during the week. So if I get done early at week, because I I, I do outside construction, I'm already kind of dressed to go out in the woods. (laughs) I just jump in a different truck and head out till dark.
3: How many uh, how many research areas do you have, or with those that you work with, say Bigfoot Ops? I know you're also a Limp Project member. I mean, how many how many areas do you do you research in, and do you have some of your? I mean, is there one or two or three or any that you really key in on that you think are productive?
2: Yeah, well, what we have, you know, out in our area, um, we have a core area, and it's probably you know in total. It's a good, I want to say maybe four square miles, right? So four miles wide and four miles deep at the base of uh, a pretty good mountain system. Um, The elevation goes from 1,900 up to 4,800 real fast at the base of this mountain system that we kind of work. And so within that area, we have, um, you know, four or five areas that we can park and be off the, off the road, off, you know, where other people can drive by. And then we go into the woods or into the wetland areas from there. So, um, we try to keep tabs, you know, in all those areas. So if, uh, if Ben's camped at one spot, you know, and and we call it Charlie, um, then I'll go camp at another spot that we'll call Bravo. That's, Mm -hmm. you know, a mile away or so, or three quarters of a mile and, and, uh, both be listening, and we'll meet up in the morning if we've heard something. And so it's one area we drive to, but within that area, you know, there's four or five kind of sub-areas
3: that we can park and check out. Mm-hmm. What, what about what about these areas or, you know, some of the more specific areas do you find appealing uh, that, it, that draws your attention to these areas? Is it the landscape, the, the animal life, the reports? Uh, what got you into some of these areas to begin with?
2: Well, like I say, you know, I um, had that that um, possible encounter with my employees, mm-hmm. you know, back in 98. Um, on the BFRO website, there are, I think there's three reports of uh, residents in that town that have reported um, hearing what, what they described as, you know, crying man, if you um, pull up some of those reports, which mm-hmm. is very similar to the sound that I recorded in August. It could be described as a woman or a man wailing, you know, wailing and um and so i i always kind of thought those would be good areas there, there's lakes up at the you know 4,800 foot level uh, up in these hills there's multiple creeks you can't you can't drive a quarter mile without crossing a major creek coming down out of these hills headed towards the squally river so there's no no lack of water and then in that big you know um Four-mile four by uh, four mile square area, there are four or five major wetlands, and I'm talking wetlands that are probably, you know, five, six acres wide that um, always have an abundance of wetland plants and cattails. And, you know, those areas never freeze solid, so there's always going to be, you know, mm-hmm plant life and foliage in there to to eat that they always come to so i i don't think they migrate out of that area in the winter i don't think they go anywhere any certain time i think that there's you know there's a family of uh, bigfoot that live in this little research area or at least visit it very often um so i kind of i stay i stay put there you know one year i bought a um, a permit to a research area 5 minutes from my house You you can drive right to this uh, private forest management area, and there's uh, been a couple of reports up the Voits Creek area um, in South Prairie, and so I can get there from my house really fast and be behind the gates. But this last summer, that whole area has been shut down for fire danger, so I kind of, you know, put the next to my research over there because then I couldn't get in there for months on end, and um, then they shut it down for elk hunting. So it was really hard to be consistent in that area.
3: The, the fire season up here was extraordinary. You know, I have, or uh, I should say have, I may have had, I, I placed some tram, uh, trail cameras up by Mount Adams, and there was a huge fire that went through there, and I haven't made it back up there yet. And I'm wondering if they're still there <laughs> because they could yeah. be uh, melted. Uh, but the fires up here played a big part in a lot of areas. Uh, I know of fellow researchers in Washington and Oregon um, that couldn't get into certain areas, and when they, they've they gone back to some of these areas, they're just Decimated and yep. uh, no longer really researchable for anything,
2: yeah, yeah, it makes makes it tough, you know they, you know, but then in those areas, you know in you know four or five months' time, there's new ground cover starts to sprout up, and then the elk love going in there and eating that, so the whole the whole cycle of life kind of starts over again, slowly but surely,
3: yeah, the whole ecosystem um the fires do play a good part uh in in most scenarios, sometimes mm-hmm. they can be pretty devastating. Um, but, uh, yeah. Uh, now, now you, you guys, or you, Chuck, I mean, have you guys, uh, I think I saw that you guys got some new equipment, or at least Ben Freed has been working on getting some new equipment with the Bigfoot Ops and uh, trying to get out in the field more. Um, do, have you obtained any new equipment, uh, and what are, your, what are you working on with that? Um, well,
2: exactly, you know, um, in, in explaining the equipment I got, I'll, I'll kind of share with you Why? I chose to get what I was getting, and I was kind of, you know, uh, Facebook and Bart Catino and Kirk uh, Brandenburg a little bit about um, what equipment to get and kind of explain, you know, what I'm after and what I'm trying to accomplish. Um, One of the research areas we go to, um, we'll sit there, we'll listen. Sometimes we'll do active listening, meaning that we'll do a howl. We'll do a knock and try to elicit a response. Uh, On a couple of uh, particular occasions, I I I just went up there to relax. I took my wife and my son with me back in June, Um, and uh, it was before. It was just after he got wrapped up with you know college and so forth, and spring football's over with, and so now I can kind of unwind and ease back into the woods. And so I had just recently got a new camper, so um, the month before, so I took that camper up to one of our research areas, and we sat out in lawn chairs, um, talking, having a good time. I, I still brought my Bigfoot gear along, meeting my parabolic mm-hmm. dishes, and so I set them up. and I think we stayed up until, you know, I think back then it got dark around nine forty five or so. So we turned in close to ten o'clock. And you know, normally, if, if I wouldn't have set up any recording equipment, I would have woke up the next morning with a
4: uneventful
2: night, nothing happening, no howls, didn't hear anything, you know. But I took my recording gear with me, and so I go back home and. Monday morning, you know, before I, I get up and get ready for work, so it's about three, 45, 4 a.m. is when I review my audio, sit there and do that for about an hour and a half before I call my employees and go to work. And that night, you know, probably an hour and a half, hour 45 minutes after we had turned in, um, according to my timestamps, um, I recorded several knocks in my area, or, you know, right in our camp spot, and probably one hour after the knocking began um, something came in and knocked into my lawn chair i leave my lawn chairs out if it's not raining and i could distinctively hear that lawn chair slide or move on the uh ground right next to the camper and so i thought man you know we might have had bigfoots real close and didn't know it or you know could have been bear or anything else but but the knocking kind of in my opinion, narrows down what's going on out in the woods with the knocks. Not just breaks; these weren't these weren't branches breaking. These were distinctive knocks, a couple of quick taps. And
3: um, any was, idea what time? You know, what time these occurred?
2: Yeah, these were hour hour and a half, hour and forty five minutes after I went to sleep. So just around before midnight. Okay, happened right, and it only went on for about hour and a half. You know, then after that, there was nothing. Just your, your normal sounds in the woods, you know, occasional breaks, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, those sounds, you know, could be anything. It could, that, that could be animals moving around and stepping on branches. And um, when owls fly through the trees, they're pretty noisy, I've learned. You know, they, they fly right through dead stuff, and then it falls to the ground, and it could sound like, you know, activity. But um, but the knocks, you know, if, it, if it's not a distinct wood-on-wood knock, I kind of pass it off. And, and I was recording those that night. And so on another occasion, kind of leading up to, you know, why I bought this equipment, I was trying to figure out, well, man, there's got to be a way to watch these things at night without them knowing you're watching them, without being outside. And in um, a week after late buck in November, I went back to that spot. Same thing, just going to go up there for the night, set out my lawn chair. This time it got dark quicker, right, because it's November. And so it's dark, you know, by 5.30, um, 5 o'clock, and... So I sit in my chair until about eight, and then realize, you know, I, it was a Friday, and I was, had been up early that morning, and went to work, so I turned in early. But again, I set up my recording stuff and wanted to listen. And this time, probably you know, two hours after I went to sleep, <clears throat> excuse me, but before midnight again, I heard, I recorded knocking. And uh, during that night, um, something had woken me up. I, I woke up, you know, from my from my sleep, and. Laid there and I noticed that the motorhome had been rocking. The motorhome had been moving. And what first set me off to that was the blinds on the window of the motorhome were banging against the window. And so as I'm laying there, I'm thinking, well, maybe I rolled over. I just don't know it and I woke myself up. And, you know, so I kind of laid there awake a little bit and then the motorhome went back, or not the motorhome, the camper went back to steady. I went back to sleep. But when I um, got home, and reviewed my recordings that Monday you know sure enough it was the same kind of knocking as I recorded you know back in June a couple of quick taps here and there I couldn't tell you if it was different locations because it did sound closer and did sound farther away but I don't know if they're tapping on one side of a tree and then the other and you know so those things are your distance is kind of tough to hear but something definitely came in and uh, was around my camper and knocking and I could hear movement but couldn't see what it was, you know. And it seems like every time we're outside listening, unless it's far away howling and, and kind of, uh, you know, not paying attention to where we're at, you know, we don't hear anything immediately around our um, research sites when we're by our vehicles. It seems to be always when we turn in. And uh, talking to Ben about that, that's happened on many occasions, you know, with him, he'll he'll go to sleep and uh, think think the night was uneventful and hear all kinds of stuff on his recordings. And we use those bonic ear parabolic dishes. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but if your listeners are and they own one, you know that they're good for about, you know, 200 yards or less. 200 yards or less, you can hear things. You can hear a knock. You can hear a howl. So they don't have great range. But it does tell you that whatever it is making the noise is, you know, within 200 yards. And so um, we – Went out one weekend, walked around that research area, stayed at about the 200, 250, and tried to find out where can I still see our vehicles from. And you know, there, and there's there is game trails back in there. And so I was trying to come up with an idea of being able to record all night with a therm in those areas. And so um, the product I ended up getting was an ATAC 360. And what that is, it's a uh, it's got a FLIR camera in it. But the housing is made by someone else. I think it's made by Stryker. And um, it, it runs off 12 volt. It's got um, video output. And so I put that thing way up on top of my camper, on top of the air conditioning unit. Now I'm like 14 feet in the air with this thing, and I can see r- way into the woods. I mean, I can see all around me to where if you're just standing by your vehicles, you have very limited... Um, sight you can't see things behind stumps or behind trees but with this thing up in the air it just increased my visibility a huge amount and so i got a little portable dvr and an extra battery for my camper and hooked it all up tried it out in fact this uh, last weekend friday night was the first time to, to use it and of course it was raining all weekend that was the one thing different you know this um, different was, um you know, because we usually don't record in the rain because we don't want our gear getting destroyed. <laughs> um, I decided I was going to record that night and, you know, take a chance and have this uh, therm going all night. But uh, unfortunately, I didn't hear anything that night and I didn't record any Bigfoots. But one positive note was, because um, I can leave that thing record for up to 14 hours on a 16-gig uh, SD card,
1: mm-hmm.
2: I just had that thing pointed right into the woods where we think they come from, because um, there's a road behind us a ways. And then the hill is, is um, on the other side of us, and we think they come down from this hill at night. And so I just pointed that baby into the hill and let it record all night long. I was waking up about every hour, you know, to kind of check it myself, make sure everything was going good. And, um, you know, about one fifteen, here come this uh, a fawn, or a doe and a fawn, came walking came you know from, from the camera's view from you know right going left so it came from our west and it stayed about 70 yards away from the the camper in the woods and i could t- clearly distinctively see what it was and was able to record it and um it walked on by and so uh, i know it works and i'll be able to pick up you know movement in there because it showed up very clear and my wife was sleeping you know so it's about 1 and um I wake her up, and so she knows why I'm out there. She knows I'm up looking for Bigfoot. She knows why I bought this equipment, and um, so when I wake her up, I know in her mind, you know, I just wanted her to see these two deer to show her that this thing works. and, and um, right. But my wife, when I woke her up, she thought I was going to show her a Bigfoot. So she comes, she came up out of her <laughs> sleep, man, just so awake, and what, what's going on? How far away is it? And she's looking. and She's going, oh, those are just deer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Got mad at me,
2: you know. Went back to sleep, but I was like, "No, this is a, a successful test run. That's what this is." And, exactly. You know. So I so upgraded to that, so I can um, be able to um, you know have you know uh, video monitoring in in thermal all night, even though we're going to be sleeping and we're all cold. So I, I I don't think with all the wild theories out there, I haven't heard one yet that says Bigfoot sees thermal. um cameras pointing at them so you know maybe until that um theory gets put out there maybe maybe i can have hope to catch something moving through the woods you know right
3: the, you know and i think one of the key components there is making it look uh like part of something you know not sticking out there all by itself if it's a, a part of this human contraption say your your camper uh, it really helps out uh, into making it just seem like it's just a part of the camper. I mean, because a lot of times, you know, you get these reports where people say their their stuff's been, you know, their camper's been shaken, or there something's gone through their camp, um, <clears throat> and they have no 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 proof, nothing to show for it. And I, I like your idea here. Uh, it's I won't say it's unique. I, I I know others that are are starting to do this, but. Um, if there is Bigfoot activity coming into these areas and, you know, maybe rocking your camp or, or messing with your camp or just coming through there, I mean, obviously you've got deer. So
1: mm-hmm. there's yep.
3: something, you know, you got animals coming through there, there there's that chance. And I, I think you'd be in a bad spot if not, not partaking in, in, in doing this. I think it's a right. great idea. Well, you know that,
2: and that's what I did. I, I ran, I, I shared what was happening with you know Kirk and Bartantino, and said, "Hey, here's what's going on. How can I capture images at night while I'm sleeping? You know, what, what, how can I get set up? My 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 current Therm doesn't record. I got a little entry level PS24. It's great for hiking. It's great to see, but I can't record images. And so both those guys, you know, sent me back links of products from Flir and from other just um, manufacturers, and said, "Here's what you want to do." And, this will work and that'll work and we just bounce back ideas and, um, they, you know, they actually kind of set me up. So I know they had done it before and they got the, you know, the, the ideas and, 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 uh, made it work. So, so I just took a shot, man. Just, um, you know, being self-employed, I, I am my own research sponsor. So, right. Uh, I, I'm the Wally Hersham of my project. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't, I don't have as big as, uh, you know, funds or resources, but, uh, um, yeah, being, yeah. Being, being self-employed and saving my pennies and my kids getting towards the end of his college span, I, I can start, you know, splurging on myself once in a while.
3: Yeah, but this stuff, and it's not cheap, you know. Uh, I, I'm i fortunate because I'm involved with some groups that own uh, equipment, whether it's audio equipment or thermal equipment. And so I get times where I get to use this stuff. I have um, a thermal line in, in my possession right now, and I just purchased uh, out of my own pocket a Pulsar unit uh, it doesn't record, but it has the capability of recording, and I've already got the whole setup ordered. It's going to arrive here shortly, so, uh, yeah, but it's all out of pocket. It's not cheap, and uh, one of the things that you have to do with this, this equipment is, you know, you can't just get this equipment and go, okay, go plug in or do whatever and, and put it out. You have to really learn the equipment and utilize it and learn how to use it properly. Otherwise, you're doing the equipment and yourself and the field a huge disservice,
2: Exactly. Yep. You know, and I, I got a uh, a Pulsar product. Uh, I think last year it's the Recon Five Hundred Five Fifty, and it's a night vision video camera. Um, and so you got to learn it. You know, because w- when you're in the dark, like you're saying, if you're not familiar with the buttons and the menus and getting it set up and getting it to record successfully, you know, you're just. Right. I don't want to say you're wasting your time because we're out in the woods. and never wasting your time, but but you're really missing out on. The full capabilities of what your equipment can do for you when you don't know how to use it.
3: Yeah, yeah, it, it's like going out in the woods and, and or the forest and when not hearing something and not having your recorder on. You got to be prepared, no matter what scenarios. You got to be thinking uh, way ahead of time that you, you, you know, in the spur of a moment, you know, you're ready to have that whatever piece of equipment you have going and operational and know how to use it just just right. Otherwise, it's you could get something phenomenal and all you all you got is a story
2: exactly you know and and I even um had my dad help me out, but in my jimmy good old ninety one g m c jimmy um <laughs> it's got metal dashboards, metal inside that thing, and so we we're able to make make me some camera mount brackets screwed right into the dash and so um anytime I move my vehicle around, I have cameras pointing out my windshield I have that recon night vision camera, and then a regular video camera mounted just, just you know looking forward and so anytime i i'm in the vehicle um you know they they don't come on when i turn the key on of course but i have to manually turn them on and set them to record but you know you just have to get in that that habit of uh doing those things cuz there's there's so many times you know i'm walking along or even driving and i don't have a camera or my GoPro rolling you know and then an elk will come out onto the road and he'll stand there and by the time you get your stuff ready he's gone and um there's a high percentage of Bigfoot reports that people see them from behind the wheel of their vehicle. Um, oh yeah, they just see them on the edge of the road or they're crossing the road. And if if you're not if you're not currently recording, you know, already in the record mode when that happens, you'll never get an image. You'll never get a video. So,
3: a a you know, Squatcher Metrics, who's on on Facebook, you know, his stats show that. A good majority of sightings happen, um, I think, between the hours of 11 and 2 in the morning where people driving on roads and, uh, you know, something crossing in front of them. And that does happen. You know, I was just up at Mount Hood, and I have a dash cam, and on my way home, I turned it off. And I didn't see any Bigfoot stuff. But I, I this blue heron, which I didn't see at first, was on the opposite side of the road and flew right in front of my truck. I just missed this thing. And it was really kind of cool. I'm like, oh, my, my dash cam's off. I turned it off because I had records and stuff I wanted to save. And th- I was thinking, what if that was a Sasquatch? You know, what what? I just screwed up. Because <laughs> yeah. it was actually pretty cool. I almost nailed this thing, and it barely missed my windshield. It would have made kind of a cool video. But, uh, you know, you got to be ready to go at all given times because you just don't know.
2: Exactly. You know, and that's kind of the back of my mind what I think is going to happen is, you know, I'll put all this time into the woods. i got all this gear. i got all this camera traps going on. I'm in the bush. You know, my wife and I, she's a good sport. We got just soaking wet Saturday, just drenched from being out there and Mm -hmm. come back cold. And, you know, we we got to see an owl. You know, that that was really cool up close. Um, But in the end, I think it's on the drive out of there on the way home, I'm going to see one cross the road. I'm going to be exhausted, and all my gear is going to be put away. And it's, you know, back in my mind, that's how I think I'm going to have a perfect daytime sighting. And and you even got to be ready then, because the toughest part is, you know, if you're when you're out in the woods and you spend more than a day, you're tired or you're wet or you're hungry, and you kind of don't get as disciplined in setting up all your stuff again, you know, getting everything ready, changing batteries, swapping SD cards. Because it does take some some effort, and it's so easy to just get out of the mood sometimes, and just sit and relax, or I'm just going to go drive, you know, a mile down the road and go into this new trail. So I'm not going to not going to record, you know. That's when something
3: happens, and absolutely, when you least expect it, uh, you know. Given all the time you spend out there and stuff, and you think you're in the right area and all that and then you're on your way home and boom it happens or exactly. uh, you know uh, it's a, a bad place to be in it if if you're not prepared because then once again you just come away with this really cool story <laughs> with no yep. evidence that's it yeah yeah uh, but speaking of evidence i mean uh, you know you got one of the things i love about your your troll cam uh, project is you know recently you posted on facebook um really I love pictures and, and videos of cats out in the woods, you know, cougars and whatnot. And you got a really neat one of this cat coming through the area that you had this trail cam, and it had a collar on it. Like uh, it's, it's somebody spalling this cat. It's got a, a you know, a tracking collar.
2: Yep. Yeah, and, you know, uh, that's. Yeah. I, I took a picture of a of a, or a video of a bear also in that same. Well, actually, it's probably about a mile and a half from there, but still within the you know research area. Um, and that bear had a tag in its ear, so um it looks like animals are being relocated from one area into this area, or at least they end up in this area um, yeah. because um that's the second animal that I've um photographed that actually you know that was obviously in human hands first, and mm-hmm. so um the bear just had a tag in his ear, it just looked like a tag and a number um but this cat that i put the um um uh, video on my facebook um that you know that, that's a radio caller. so it's oh
3: yeah transmitting
2: you know um now all the times i've been out in, in these woods um and there's only only a couple ways into them um i've never i've never um passed a um a dnr employee i've never seen a park ranger i've never seen fish and wildlife out there um, and I've never seen any private biologists out there with, um, you know, receiving array on their hoods of their vehicles. I, I have seen in other places guys who track bear and they have their antenna arrays, you know, up on their hood. and um, They're looking for bears that are denned up. And I, I've seen that, but I've never seen any of those things in this research area. And so I, I just imagine it's a m- you know, matter of time being out there um, that I'll see them. And it could be that those guys are in there during the week and most most um, people like myself are out there Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and those biologists could be out there Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday. You know, I'm just not seeing them on the right day. But uh,
3: yeah, yeah, you're you're, you're taught ahead. by in person. I mean, because I, I believe you leave. You know, you're, I mean, how long do you leave your trail cams yeah. out there at any given time? Well, I, I leave
2: them out there. Um, I try to leave them out there indefinitely, and then I just replace yeah. them as they fail. But every three months, I go back and check. Uh, my cameras so i've got four major areas where i have um, four cameras in each area and so i rotate go into them you know one month i go to one grouping and then another month i go to the next grouping and replace batteries and so I, I leave them out there quite a while this particular camera was set back in um october and um that uh date stamp on there i think was december 15th or something like that so was last month mm-hmm. that, the, that the cat actually walked by that particular camera. But you know, of all all the times, all the cameras I have out there in this you know area, and you know, you could have a hundred cameras, you know, placed in an acre of land, and you know, if they don't walk past the camera, you're not getting a picture. <laughs> you know, it just it seems, right. to, it, it, yeah, it seems exactly, to be a you, know? you walk on the other side of the tree, you know.
3: It's it's amazing to me when people say, "Oh, we have all these trail cameras out there, and we don't get anything." Well, I'll, I'll tell you what: getting a cat on camera, bear is is awesome. You know, I get deer quite frequently, and and uh, um, and you know, the wind moving a branch and whatnot. But I I don't get a whole lot, you know, cats or you know uh, or or um, bear, bear. get that stuff on cam on a trail cam. It's, it's unique and, and awesome. I just have an issue with people that say that, oh, there's all these trail cameras out there, and we don't have any really really awesome pictures of sasquatch uh it really to me is a needle in a haystack when you look at some of the woods out there that the the millions of acres you know it takes something to walk right by the cam um and and let's be honest, I mean most of the the trail cameras out there are are have slow shutter speeds i mean there's they're not um you know, six, seven hundred dollar, five hundred dollar trail trail cams. They're you know they're kind of cheapo. So it takes something. If something's walked by really quick, you'll get a blur. Right. Exactly.
2: You know, yeah. my cameras are all right about the two hundred dollar range. Yeah. Um, so they're not the most expensive. You know, the trigger speeds are a half a second. You know, and they have some out that are that are faster than that.
3: And and if you notice
2: that um, that cat's walking right at the camera. Oh yeah. You know, so he triggered it. You know. 20 30 feet away and uh walked right at it and walked right past and didn't even didn't even stop to sniff it you know but if he had been walking you know at a right angle to the camera I I may have only caught his hind end or tail or something um if he'd have been closer or further away to be a little bit longer viewing but yeah you're right you know if they don't walk at the right way the right angle um that, that's going to be tough I I could imagine though um, spending more money you know per camera you know so and what I mean by that is, um, you kind of roll the dice. Do you spend a couple hundred bucks right. a camera and get 14 of them, or do you spend five and $600 on a camera and you only get five or six of them? You know what I mean? Yeah.
3: So, yeah, it, I mean, you'd have to be I mean, really, really confident to put them out there because, you know, to get a, a camera stolen or or broken or, or whatnot, it, especially with that amount of money spent, um, could... You know, hit you right in the gut. Uh, I, 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 I'm like you. Uh, I, you know, I'm I'm not a rich man, but I do like to buy trail cameras, and so mm, I range from between 150 to 200 bucks. Uh, you know, uh, I do have one more expensive one on the way, but I mean, you really have to really good area. I like to place mine really remote, though. When I go camping uh, in certain areas, I'll put it out there for the nights and take it back with me. But I do also, you know, play some remote. But you know, you just never rule out the human element. You can never roll out that somebody's gonna come up there and just you know, you know, like a bear and just kinda gnaw at it and break it up <laughs> and not exactly. yeah. yeah. Well you know,
2: I, I, I lock all my cameras up, um, but I'm beginning to even change whether I do that or not, you know. And, and a lock cost you about twenty bucks to get those Python cable cam you know, game camera locks. Um, because when I was uh you know, up at the Olympic project you guys were we were sitting cameras one weekend and Derek locks all of his cameras up. uh, Which I think even now he's changed his attitude on that a little bit because he was sharing a similar story with me. But I have my brother-in-law with me, and I'm setting up cameras. And he goes, oh, you lock them up, huh? And I go, yeah. And he goes, well, do you think that keeps people from stealing them? (laughs) And I go, "Um, well, maybe it just keeps the honest people honest. Uh, Makes me feel better. But my brother-in-law showed me, you know, most hunters or guys out in the woods got nice big knives or even um, small axes or tomahawks that they keep with them and a,
1: yeah. you know, a pretty
2: good strike goes right through those cables so you know, yeah I don't, I don't know if i'm gonna keep spending money on camera locks I, I do put them in places where um people don't go you know i mean I, there's no human traffic and hiking you know these aren't on hiking trails and where we go is really not a recreational area people do go in there and, poach, and um, there is, you know, seasonal logging that happens, you know, way back, um, kind of beyond some of the gates out there. But other than that, it's
1: not that many people out there. Yeah, I,
3: I, I re- I'll be honest, I don't lock any of my cameras up. Uh, I hope they don't get stolen, but usually I try to place them in really remote areas, areas that I, I see no evidence of human traffic. Um, I just don't lock them up. And uh, to this day, I've not had one stolen yet, but I place them in really kind of kinda of remote areas, areas where I don't think people will um traverse. Uh, you know, it's all it's all a hope obviously. Yep. Um but you can never rule out animals just damaging them. you know. I mean I've seen I've seen trail cam pictures where <laughs> you can an elk come up there and just not with his antlers or bears and so you just you just never know. It's a it's a risk and uh um but it's a risk I'm willing to take. Oh exactly, you know and I'm having a blast I man I, I look at the
2: enjoyment I get out of going to each of these cameras, servicing them. I have to be in that research area, which so makes me look for tracks, it makes me look for sign and um you know it, in the end it's it's worth it now, if somebody came through and wiped out all fourteen of my cameras in a one month's time, I'm probably gonna um that booby trap <laughs> instead of game cameras <laughs> you know? but uh and, you know that will kind of motivate you a different way but uh no, I, right I, I love it I, and it's a chance and i leave mine out all the time so i go check them every three months so i put you know an energizer lithium batteries in them which i think is the mm-hmm. best battery for outdoor use my duracells mm-hmm. just seem to erode and ruin my cameras mm-hmm. and, and so you know they're on the elements the whole time and I used to move my cameras a lot and i didn't get very good pictures of wildlife maybe occasional deer but you know just this last year i leave my cameras in the same spot for eight nine months at a time and then then i reevaluate to move them and that's when i'm starting to get you know the bear pictures and i got this you know cougar picture um and so you know we have that old thing that finding bigfoot is like a needle in the haystack and it's always moving the needle's always moving and if that's true, and if you keep moving your cameras, you know, you're, you're not, you're kind of chasing the needle. But if you just leave your stuff in one spot for a whole year, however long it takes, sooner or later, you would think that needle may find its way towards that camera or, you know, or, you know,
3: close to that area. Mm-hmm. So I quit moving them. And, I keep, keep them in the same spot. And, and speaking keep, on that, I mean, you, you do have some interesting... Pictures on your trail camera. I mean, I'm not saying yeah, but this thing walking right up to it, it's a Sasquatch. But you do have some interesting um, images on your trail cam uh, that I've looked at, and uh, that's kind of out there. I think it's on the Bigfoot Ops page uh, that show something interesting. uh, Given the height, and we talked about this the last time you were on the show, but those those to me are are interesting. Uh, You know, you can't outright say it's a bear or whatnot. I mean, obviously there's hair there. The height that these things were placed. I find that very interesting.
2: Yeah, you know, and, and I think um me and Ben may have had an encounter with a couple of uh Bigfoots right in that area. We I went back there and was um checking batteries and putting in S D cards and actually was gonna add um a couple more cameras near that location and um we noticed that uh you know you know now that it's winter time leaves and everything are coming down and we could see this very well worn path right near these cameras going deeper you know kind of into the woods and so we decided to follow it we didn't notice any elk um sign droppings or nothing and it was uh near frozen you know this was probably on a weekend that's 18 to 20 degrees and so when you walk you can hear it you can you know hear the leaves crunching and uh we follow that um trail back in a little ways into woods I've never been in before, you know, and so um, we're just sitting there kind of listening and talking, and then we can hear in front of us what sounded like a couple of guys coming right at us in the woods. We couldn't see them, but we could hear them, um, because there were, it was this big patch of uh, fir trees, a couple cedars in there, and uh, we couldn't see through them, but we knew that something was either walking within them or on the just on the other side of them, you know, coming towards us. And so we're listening and then that uh the the, the frozen ground crunching noise stops and we don't hear it. So about five minutes later, you know, Ben looks at me and he goes, Let's get our cameras ready. You know, and these are our handheld video cameras so, you know, GoPro's already rolling on my chest, but uh he gets his the video camera out and we have it on uh, record, you know, ready for whatever comes through. Then we hear the crunching noise again, but this time it, it's it's flanking or going around us. So as we're looking at the origin of the noise, it's moving to our 3 o'clock. And we hear it move for about, I don't know, maybe five or six steps, and then it stops again. And then Ben looks at me and he says, you know, I'm going to go this way, you know, towards where it's going, try and get ahead of it. You stay right here in case it doubles back because there was a clearing in front of us before you got to these um, trees. And we were standing like within some tall grass. And so I'm taking a knee and not trying to be too conspicuous. And Ben starts moving now towards, you know, like like our 5 o'clock position, kind of angling in front of it. And as soon as he does that, he takes maybe four steps from me, and then a knock loudly comes from that direction of where we heard that walking stop just a nice loud knock and ben looks at me and he's going man he goes we got one right in here there's one close by so i turn my body towards where that knock came from and then there's no more noise and so ben starts moving further now ben gets out of my eyesight you know he's going through the woods and i don't see him no more but i don't hear anything else coming from that three o'clock position um And then all of a sudden, behind me, which would be my 9 o'clock position, I hear another knock, nice loud knock. Um, So now there's one that happened on right and left of us. When Ben hears that knock, he makes his way back over to me, and he's like, did you just knock from over there? And I says, no, no, it's either the same one made it all the way around us, or Mm -hmm. there's two of them in here. And as we're standing there talking, you know, mumbling, you know, kind of to ourselves in low tones, then we hear the footsteps pick up again, and... On both sides of us, seemingly, seemingly, in my mind, as I interpret what you hear, which is really, you know, I guess questionable in the woods, Duke. Your oh. mind plays trick, but it, it sounded like they went right around us and then continued, um, just avoided our area completely. And we could hear them. We could hear them walking off. So we spend the next hour and a half, two hours, scouring that area, looking for sign. But it's all frozen grass and frozen leaves, and we couldn't find any definite. You know, obvious Bigfoot tracks in that um, mm-hmm. in that in, you know in the, in the ground.
3: So we we're kind of yeah. Uh, at what a elevation loss. are we talking about? Because you know, um, I always refer back to well, I don't always, but I like to because uh, we work closely with uh, Squatch Metrics. You know, and, and um, for this time of year, specifically in Washington, uh, with sightings, uh, they seem to happen. Um, below the 300 uh, foot level. which So you're talking like coastal range. Uh, and so I'm interested when I hear stuff like this going on uh, as the elevation, you know, uh, and I'm not saying that uh, just because of some of the stats and reports that SoundSquatch is always going to go lower or going to be in a lower elevation, but um, the, some of these stats provided by Squatrometrics show that, you know, in specifically Washington, that a lot of the the sightings will not happen below 300 feet, and it makes a lot of sense to me, uh, you know, um, w- and I'd like to ask you, on top of what elevation you possibly were at, what where, where are your thoughts on elevation, you know, even with just the, you know, elk and deer populations out there?
2: Well, you know, it, it'll depend on, on where you're at, you know. So, like, when this yeah. happened to us, that was at 1,900 feet okay? in the Nisqually River, in the uh, L.B. Ashford area, with that, as that river runs through that town, those towns are at about, you know, 1,800 feet, 1,850. You, you can't get any lower unless you're digging a hole, you know what I'm saying? And then you go um, north towards Eatonville, yeah. and Eatonville's closer to that um, 750, 800-foot elevation, and then in Graham, where I live, is about 500-foot elevation. So um, I think they do go from higher to lower, but I don't think they leave the L.B. Ashford area To go, you know, to get down to a, you know, I don't think they follow the river towards Olympia or so forth, trying to get to that lower, because Olympia is certainly down at like that 500 foot or more or lower
1: Mm -hmm.
2: elevation. I think they just, um, depending on the harshness of where they live, you know, I mean, obviously if it's a more mountainous, ruggedous, you know, area, and it snows and you know, moving around is tougher, they may come down to those lower elevations. But, again, you know, because those reports go up in the winter times, um, it's because people don't go up into those higher elevations yes. as much. They can't get up there no more like they could in April and May. So
3: that's great. Yeah, that's a great point, yeah.
2: Uh, so, you know, that's the thing about sightings and encounters. I mean, just like even the stuff I record, it's, you try to interpret it, a lot of it as, well, this is what Bigfoots are doing. But it's really what you're doing, and you know, a Bigfoot just happened to maybe make a vocal a knock or a sighting in those areas you know so i don't think i I think they're adapted so well that like in our area what i really believe in our area based on the knocks and what i'm seeing and hearing and the patterns you know they're coming out of these hills at night and it doesn't matter what time of the year because it's consistent every month and they come down into these wetlands and they forage you know there are beaver in these wetland areas that Mm -hmm. out that are in our area and um, they're just taking advantage of what's available, you know, uh, foraging all night before they work their way back up in the late morning hours. And, um, you know, so I, I so I, I do think they go from higher to lower at certain times, you know. When your uh-huh. berries are going to bloom <laughs> later, or lower, and your berries are going to be up higher at certain times of the year, and they may stay up in those hills. And, you know, right. So
3: I, and I would call that, you know, I wouldn't call that necessarily uh, like a migration uh, you know, a lot of people wonder if, if Bigfoot, you know, um, migrate, and I wouldn't call that necessarily migration. Uh, you know, it's more of a descending. You know, you, you, you know, uh, migration for a lot of animals out there is hundreds of miles, if not thousands. Uh, up here in the Pacific Northwest, I don't think that's necessary. Um, it you can drop a couple hundred, uh, you know, feet, uh, a couple, you know. You can go a, a few miles and, and get out of some of the harsher conditions. I mean, just look at your deer and elk. They're still out there mm-hmm. uh, at these higher elevations, not just the lower elevations. You might find an abundance at a lower elevation, but you'll still find them up at the higher elevations. Right, yep. So you can't uh, you can't rely on... on I, I love your point, though, and it's very true about the human element. Uh, you know, to have an a encounter experience or just to... Record something takes people being out there, and there's just not that many people out there in the winter specifically, and and even some of the other times of the year in some of these more remote areas to uh, get this sort of experience or record stuff.
2: Yeah, you know, and and last time on the show we talked about recording data and and what do you do with it, you know, and um, my son was showing me better ways to um, filter and sort um, the data I put on my um, Excel spreadsheets, and um, mm-hmm. I just was playing with that here, you know, it was about a month or two ago, um, and saw that, um, you know, oh, wow, it looks like it's uh, more active in this one area in the certain moon phase, and, you know, sharing that with my son. I was like, hey, look, man, I appreciate you sharing, sharing this with me, because now look what I can do. And I was trying to show my son what I can do now on my computer. And um, he asked me, he goes, well, hey, Dad, how come you never go into this uh, one research area during the last moon phase um, i was like well i don't know and he goes because right now it looks like you have zero activity in that area during a certain moon phase but what the, what, what what in truth what's happening is i never go into that area during the last moon phase and so right. I'm like, you know what i need to go i need to be in that area during the moon phases that i normally aren't to make sure i'm i'm consistent with what i think i'm you know seeing going on out there so um and again it doesn't make you it makes you look at the human element you know where where do i go the most you know is kind of what my research is showing me and um but you know when you do look at the overall stuff i mean the um the howls and the knocks you know we get always in the darker moon phases um, and in the lighter moon phases it's just It's not as much, you know, and we go in the whole area. If you look at the area as a whole, we're out there consistently in each moon phase, but we're not in each area during each moon phase because one person can only be in one spot four times a month, right? And you have all these different moon phases, more than four. So it's hard to get there, and, um, you know, that's where the team part of it, you know, comes into effect. But... It was neat, my son, you know, he's always showing me something new and he shows me what I'm not doing out in the woods and he has, you know, no interest really in Bigfoot. He's fascinated when I share stuff with him. He thinks it's interesting, but when I show him math or I show him, you know, stats on a spreadsheet, then he looks at it in different eyes and mm-hmm. he's showing me things that I'm not doing out there that I maybe should be, so that's that's kind of cool.
3: Yeah, and, and I agree with you. It's hard to be out there doing every every certain moon phase, but it's important to be out there during those moon phases. And, I mean, uh, I know fishermen rely on it, hunters rely on it, uh, because given history, um, they know to follow certain moon phases and and whatnot. And that's important to be in those areas during certain moon phases and times of year. If you're not out there, even even if nothing happens, you're still gaining knowledge and adding to the data okay, well, I was out there doing a full moon or a half moon or a quarter moon or whatever, a blood moon, and nothing happened or something happened, and you're recording that data. Uh, yep. it, it's, it's so important to, you know, and it will it'll back up everything you do down the road and it will get you to a point where you're going, okay, these are the times I need to be out there because this seems to be the most activity. You know, I mean, like I said, with hunters and fishermen, they rely on this stuff, and they know when to go out there and fish. They They know the times and the years. You go out there and fish. And exactly, that's how
2: important it is. Yep, you know, because my son was telling me, with, you know, taking stats in college, that um, you put all the numbers together, and the numbers tell you things. They tell you probabilities, not 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 100% accuracies, but they tell you probabilities in things. And so he was just telling me, man, you have the highest probability of a howl or a knock in this area during this moon phase and so mm-hmm. we try to be there. Somebody in our in our group, me or Ben, my brother goes. Um, we have another guy from Bremerton who drives all the way from Bremerton now and uh comes out and research with us, Darren Locke. And so, um mm. I, I admire that he's, you know, drives that far to, you know, come out and check out what's going on and so we need to get organized to where if you have four or five guys out there and if if everybody's, you know, can, can do it, um, be in four or five different areas at the same time and, um, listen and do audio and, you know, track areas. And then you just cover more
3: ground. Yeah. With these moon phases, and this is a question from chat. I mean, are you seeing, uh, during these certain moon phases when activity seems to, to, you know, kind of, uh, Spike up, or I mean, is there a certain time of moon phase that you like to go out? Um, well,
2: if I have, a, you know, if I only have two weekends out of the month that I can go, because um, I have I have responsibilities at church, and so there's certain weekends that I have to stay close to home, or things have happened in our church family, and I have
1: to, mm-hmm.
2: you know, be close to those guys. And if I if I only if I have to pick and choose what my duties and stuff are, I look at my calendar, I look at the moon phases. And because the the it's a higher probability of getting activity during the darker moon phases, well, then those are the weekends I pick and go out um, are during the dark moon phases because we, that's when we do are, are essentially getting the knocks and we're getting the howls and the screams and um, are during those times. So um, yeah. if, I, if I can pick, I go the dark time. But to be true and consistent with your research, you should try to go equal all times.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then you have a better, you know, range of what's going on out there. If you if, if you never go in the bright moon phases, then all your data is going to show activity in the dark moon phases. You know, and it, it lopsides your data, doesn't give you true probabilities of what's going on out there if you only go out certain weekends or certain times of the year.
3: Exactly. No, Well. well, well said and absolutely true. You have to be out there. Um, during all moon phases and times of year, in my opinion, to really get a better picture of what you're dealing with or not dealing with, yeah. and so, you know, one of the uh, questions of uh, that has been posed to me recently is, how could Sasquatch survive the winter months? Um, you know, the Pacific Northwest, we we really don't get real harsh winters. I mean, we have our times, but we don't get those really, um, you know, sub-below zero temperatures and stuff. We get snow, we get ice and all that and sleet. And, but we don't get those really harsh, harsh, harsh con- conditions. Uh, up here in the Southern Northwest, you know, I have no problem thinking that, you know, something like a Sasquatch can survive through the winter without doing a whole lot, you know. Um, I don't believe Sasquatch hibernate personally. I don't, uh, I think some of the, the evidence out there or possible evidence shows that because there's people still see them. Um, they're still finding tracks. Uh, but how, in your opinion, would a Sasquatch survive in the winter and what would it do? I mean, have you come across any... You know, we had Derek Randall's on last week talking about, you know, with the Lynn Project, talking about nests. And uh, he knows, has no idea what time these nests were constructed. He has ideas and whatnot, or have ideas. Uh, but Have you come across any possible nesting areas or, I mean, what are your thoughts about Sasquatch in the wintertime?
2: Well, you you know, yeah, it's tough to find out what they do way up in the mountains, you know, when the snow levels down to 2,500 feet, because anything above that's tough to go into. So if they exist up there, nobody knows it because they're not up there, you know, in it. But because we don't, Because, like, during during the winter, like in our research area, you know, there was over a foot of snow there last month. You couldn't drive in there. It was just tough getting in there. And so I know that as the elevation goes up to the 4,800 feet is where uh, one of the higher lakes are, um, the snow's got to be deeper, it's got to be thicker, it's got to be harder to move. And I don't see a huge um, increase in knocks and uh, um, howls down low if that's where they're being pushed down into. So they must be able to exist up there in all conditions. You know, you have to be able to adapt in all conditions to be reclusive still. And, um, you know, they have to be able to live in, you know, making their nests like Derek was was saying. Mountain gorillas do that. And I believe Bigfoot is just another more pure uh, species of mountain gorilla in North America. So I think they do build nests. I think they, um, you know make shelter to get out of the extreme weather whether it's you know within a pile of rocks i think they are smart enough to do that if a great ape can do it i, I believe bigfoots are smarter than great apes um and i think they know how to look for rabbits and rodents and uh, mountain beaver which is another big species of kind of a rat that lives in the you know dirt yeah. in the hillside i think they see that you know their arms are longer than us they're able to pull them out of there i i think um when bears hibernate i wouldn't put it past a very very hungry sasquatch to come across a hibernating bear den and reach in and pull them out you know either use yeah. his, and for shelter or use him for food i mean that that's how north american indians did it in the rockies in the cascades in the winters they hunted hibernating bears you know for food sources and
1: Deal. Yeah,
3: we're we're talking about something that's in the woods twenty four seven. This is their life. Uh, this is what they do. And so, to as a human, someone that's not living in the woods uh, constantly, it, it's kind of ridiculous to even surmise what Sasquatch are capable of because we're not there. Uh, they're in their environment twenty four seven. This is where they live. So, food sources for them are abundant. I would imagine, and they know where to find them. They know where to go. Shelters, for example. I I don't think they necessarily build uh, these really rambunctious, huge shelters. Uh, I think they just know where to go, and and they can maybe put something together if needed, but I don't think it's necessary. Uh, They can hunker down in an area and and build a a comfy or just habituate an area remotely that doesn't require a whole lot of effort.
2: Yeah, you know, and I've snowshoed into um, um, areas
3: where, you know,
2: you're walking through, you know, 18, 20 inches of powder with snowshoes, and then um, I want to go off the uh, trail a little bit, maybe relieve myself, you know, if I'm with some friends. And this this has been years back, but when you get inside the tree line, nice thick canopy tree line, and I wanted to find a nice thick one because I don't want nobody seeing me do my thing. And once I got inside these fir trees, I mean, there's only, only like four inches of snow underneath exactly. the tree canopy. was <laughs> yeah. um, like, man, because it, it just doesn't get down that far. And, and there's got to be multiple pockets of that in, in these mountainous areas in the Cascades where fir trees grow all the way to the tippy top until you get above, you know, 5,500 feet. Once you get to alpine level, there are no trees. Um, I think Bigfoots can find those areas and they can move around those areas. They can exist in those areas. They're insulated. I mean, you know, it's just... I I look at, um, you know, that movie that was just out, The Revenant, I don't know if you've seen it, it's an awesome movie, Uh, Mm -hmm. but that movie inspired me to read about it, and so I I bought a book about the life story of Hugh Glass, and in particular, mountain men. How did mountain men live up in the Rockies, above 5,000 feet, in the dead of winter? How did the North American Indians do that, you know, and they did, they didn't come down into the towns, you know, they didn't, very rarely did mountain men come out of the mountains to, to trade fur and You know, they went there because they didn't like city life. They existed. And so it it can be done. If humans can do it, if North American Indians were able to move across the Rockies in the dead of winter and exist and flourish, you know, I'm pretty sure animals that were built to be outside can do it better than us.
3: Oh, absolutely. You know, I was um, driving up to Mount Hood, this past weekend and there's snow and and everything everywhere and we're driving on the roads yeah there's snow on the roads and whatnot and you'd pass through an area where there was a lot of tree cover uh over the roads where the sun didn't penetrate and it'd be a little thicker and you go to an area where it was more open and the sun had penetrated and melted the snow and ice but when you're looking down into the woods into the forest it was the deep woods uh there was little snow or one not to be found because it's so covered. It, it's not rocket science to me that something could, you know, uh, other animals do it. Why couldn't Sasquatch survive in, in, in these areas at higher elevation, um, given that uh, they have this much cover? It, it You know, it does, stands to reason. Yeah.
2: You know, I, I remember being a kid, and I must have been, I don't know, fourth or fifth grade, and I went hunting with my dad. And as as a young kid, the excitement is over with by about, one, two o'clock in the afternoon, right, when you're hunting. Now you're cold, and now you're hungry, and I want to go back to the camper. I want to go, you know, and we were, we were in snow, and my dad goes, well, here, I'm going to put you right over here for a couple hours while I hunt this ridge, and I'll come right back. And um, I was like, well, put me where? I'm looking around, all I see is trees. And uh, he goes, no, you're going to sit right within the fur bows. And I, man, I, I looked at that, and I was like, no way, I'm going to freeze my butt off you know, because the snow's all on the trees, they bend them down, he goes, no, you're going to sit right inside them, you, I'll, you'll barely be able to see out, but you're going to be within the, uh, you know, the, the fur bows of, of the tree, and this tree, you know, is maybe only about eight to twelve feet tall, sure enough, man, I sat right in there, and my feet weren't cold no more, and I was, I was comfortable, took a little nap, you know, just totally different, you just, you just got to know how to be able to exist, and it's not that tough. I'm sure Bigfoots look out at the city lights of Ashford or LB or Port Angeles or Tillamook <laughs> and wonder how do those people do it down there,
3: <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, I how, mean, how can they stand it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I love camping in the wintertime, and we go out. I mean, the wintertime, we're out frequently and often, and love it. I love coming out, you know. And of course, I'm out doing it for months on end. I personally, I'd love to. But I can't afford to do that. But I'd love doing it and testing myself, you know. And I find it, um, if you're knowledgeable about the area you're in and knowledgeable about surviving in these conditions, it's not, um, yes, you do come across some harsh conditions and and terrain and whatnot, but it's not impossible. And the more comfortable you are in these areas during this time of year, the better off you are. And it's just not uh a lot of people hate going out there. I love it. I live for it.
2: Yep. You know, and then getting back to that, you know, we're, we're, people say, well, what do they eat? What do they do in the winter when it's, you know, like this? And in our, in our research area, like I was saying, right now, all this, well, I was up there um, yesterday and Friday, and, and the rain's pretty much taking care of all the snow at the 2,000-foot level. Above above 3,000, the snow still exists, but down below, you know, it got rained out. But a month ago, I mean, there was a foot of snow. I couldn't drive in there with my 4x4. Um, had a hike in there. And uh, when I hike in there, I did come across um, bear tracks in the snow. And these were at, you know, just under 2,000 feet. And that was, um, you know, late November, early December. And most people in their mind who who don't go out in the woods all the time, who don't keep tabs on research areas, think that, well, as soon as it's cold, bears hibernate. You know, they just, that little clock goes on inside of them. They go and they den up. You're not going to see bears in the winter. Well, I personally know there's bears in our research area during the winter. I've seen their tracks. They're in there. Um, if they're in there when it's that cold, and if supposedly there's no more vegetation growing, then, you know, what are the bears eating? They're finding something. Um, when you really study the biology of a bear, a bear does not hibernate until his right. his calorie intake goes below a certain level, and then he becomes lethargic, and then, the, then what goes on inside him is that... The low calorie intake tells them he's gotta go hibernate, he's gotta go lay down. And they'll even come out of they'll even come out of hibernation, you know, when the temperatures come up or their body tells them to. So as long as there's food to eat, bears don't hibernate. And so
3: Yeah. Um specifically it, the black bear. It, I mean, exactly. they really are not true exactly. hibernators. Um yep. they they're up all times of the year. They may uh lay down and, and, and sleep and whatnot, but yes, they're up and at them any given moment, uh, based, based on their needs. Yep.
2: You know, and, the uh, the other thing about the game cameras, having them out there all the time, you know, we talk about animal and other animal behavior, you know, we like to, I mean, I wish I could know as much about bears and cougars, you know, I wish I knew Bigfoot as much as those other animals, but you just don't have an interaction, <laughs> you just don't know. But what you do know is, um, a lot of people think that bears are, are terennial. you know, they, they have mm-hmm. powers just like us. And, um, that's not true cougars don't i mean my game cameras i used to just erase all the pictures Oh, another another elk another deer you know i got hundreds of those pictures they're not fun no more <laughs> um but what i started doing was paying attention to that to the time stamps um because people think deer and elk you know they're all they're all going to lay down and they don't move around in the rain you know i, mean, I remember hearing that was my dad and his buddies were all hunting um, oh, it's clear out, you know, they're not going to be moving around, it's going to be a bad day tomorrow. And that, that that may be true where they hunt, but it's it's not an absolute um, that they don't move around. So what I'm trying to say is when I check my game cameras, I've all hours of the night I have movement. I mean, I've recorded bears at night, cougars at night, early in the morning, during the day. You know, so it's just kind of... Um, so when they feel like eating and moving, they just get up and go. There is no, you know, like you and I, it's dark out, we want to go to sleep, we have to go to work tomorrow, which means that we have to try and get eight hours of sleep. So we try to turn in roughly eight hours before we have to get up. Well, the animals don't have a clock like that, and they just they move around when they need to move around. When right. I tested out that ATAC um, 360, that thermal um, gear on top of my camper, the deer that I recorded coming through seventy yards from the camper, it was coming down like you wouldn't believe. I mean, it was just so I was hard asleep, it was so loud raining. And here come this, you know, Doe and Fawn, it's pouring down rain, 1.15 in the morning and they're just walking by like nothing and stopping occasionally nibbling and then moving through as if it was just, you know, midday sunny out, you know. I mean they weren't
1: yeah they
2: weren't and they weren't spooked, you know. They, they definitely weren't just—they weren't down for the night. Is what I'm I guess what I'm trying to say is so.
3: Yeah, yeah. You know, um, now I, I want to play the some audio that you you gave to us. Uh, you know about possible coyotes and whatnot. Uh, do you want to give a little brief um, uh, synopsis of of what happened and how you came upon this uh, audio? Sure.
2: Um, first, I'll give you know, credit where credit is due. You know, Ben Freed recorded these, and so and that's the great thing about you know having a team or a group of guys to go with. And it's always fun to go together. It's always fun to meet guys out in the woods together. Um, but I think it's it, it, it's better for your research if there's if you go separate times, right? So in other mm-hmm. words, I wasn't present when Ben recorded. He was out there. So on the weekends, I'm not out there. He's out there. Um, and I give Ben a lot of credit because he's out there probably more times than I am, um, and so he was able to capture these sounds. And like I say, Monday mornings he he emails them to me, and um, I'm getting pretty good at using Sonic Visualizer. And Dave Ellis showed me some tricks on that, and so. Um, we ran these through that, but Ben recorded these. Um, I say possible coyotes because a couple of them at the beginning don't sound like a coyote. They don't come in at the at the right frequency for a coyote. Right. On one of those recordings, coyotes join in, and every one of their vocals are where a coyote should be in mm-hmm. the spectrum range. But a couple of those weren't. So,
3: yeah, okay. you know, and and the one interesting things about this audio and, and and coyotes and possible Bigfoot vocals in general is that. I, I don't know how many times I've recorded it or heard uh, from other researchers where the coyotes get set off by something or vice versa, and you hear these odd vocals in between. It's it's very interesting stuff. Now, I, this is blog talk, folks, so forgive uh, me and blog talk because I'm going to play this, and you may not hear it as it should be sent, you know, heard. But uh, we'll play it for your listening um entrepreneurship and here we uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and play it now Uh, uh doesn't sound coyote like to me. Um I know <clears throat> uh, fundamentally you can never rule out coyotes or other animals in the field, but uh it, i having listened to this and, and actually thrown it on visualizer, some especially in the beginning of this audio, it 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 stands out to me that uh it's uh not coyote, but I can't rule out coyote. But it stands out that it's the possibilities are that it's
1: not a coyote, right?
3: And then you know,
2: and this goes back to now study what what animals do out there. You know, so what, what does yeah. a coyote do? A, a lone coyote will vocalize, and he'll vocalize loud, and he'll try and get a response. But what he, what that coyote will do when it gets a response is then normally join up with that group that he's helping yes. looking for, or he'll give a different call if he found a kill, or if he's looking for a mate, or wounded. Right, so they have different um, calls that they give out in this particular call whatever that is starts out calling and then when the rest of the uh, the pack you know that's out there starts vocalizing that yeah. first that first caller keeps on calling like he did the first time even though a response of coyotes were given off so he did he, that caller didn't change how it was vocalizing even after the coyotes joined in which I which right. I found odd because usually then they, they change the way they call and they hook up because those uh, the other coyotes were definitely yipping and they were all together.
3: Oh yeah, you heard the, I heard the yipping and whatnot. I heard a bark and whatnot after the fact mm-hmm. after that first initial um, uh, yell or or whatnot.
2: Yeah, and those yells are, are right in, you know. And of course, you know, maybe someday somebody's gonna um, videotape a coyote um, vocalizing. You know, between the uh, three and five hundred, you know, hertz range. Pre- yes. Frequency. Usually, they're way higher. They're nine hundred and higher, right? Um, but there could yes. be one that vocalizes lower. It's just you know, right now, that one, that that uh, first caller, is right in that range of uh, possible, possible.
3: Yeah. Rhythm. Of course, it's, nobody's they seen. Out. I'm going to play. I'm going to play the first 30 seconds of that again right now, just so for some some people are asking to play this again, and I'd like to hear it again. So I'm going to play it again, not the whole thing. It's a minute seven seconds recording, but I'm going to play like the first 30 seconds. So here we go. Uh, it's very interesting looking at it because it's it's as to me outside of some of what coyotes do,
2: right? But you know, yeah. if somebody told me and they listened to it, and this is where you know you got to take uh, Bigfoot research with a good sense of humor. Is people might, you know, hey, you're you know, you're dumb. That was all coyote, you know. And, and some people comment that that's that's you know, it doesn't bother me, you know. I know it doesn't bother men. Bend. So if anybody's listening yeah. to that, Oh, you guys are crazy. Those are all kites. So well, that's okay. You know, it's just cool. We got to record something. We get to we get to analyze it on something. Visualize. It. We get to bounce it off people. That that's what research is.
3: Yeah. Well, do you know what? We had you on the show before, and we have some of your other audio. I'd like to play another piece from the last show uh, that we did. Um, I labeled this the secondary piece of audio, but uh, you can talk about this. I'm going to play it now, and then you can speak to it afterwards. All right. Uh, it sounded somewhat similar and interesting.
2: It, it is, you know, and that's what—that's why I, you know, that that uh, first one that you played, which we got yes. later than the one that you just played, you know, as far as chronological order, um, yeah, is because on Sonic Visualizer, the two are very similar exactly. voice patterns, and the length of the howls are very similar. They're, they're pretty yeah. long, even for a coyote, uh, without changing pitch frequency. Uh, a lot of times, as coyotes or canines expel as they howl and they start running out of air, you, you know, you hear it. Their pitch changes in their lungs, and these just sound like longer lungs. Th- these come from wetland areas. What I don't know is, I don't know do coyotes run around inside of wetland areas and you know walk through puddles. You know, they may they may eat frogs or something too. I I don't know, but these um, howls came from close by to wetland areas.
3: Yeah, it, for me personally, it's throwing them up on Sonic Visualizer and, and looking at the comparisons to coyotes. Known, you know, known coyote sounds um, compared to non, you know, coyote sounds. I mean, the, these are very similar. Uh, and you shared the the last one on our previous show, and I I, I wanted to hear them both together. I Was like, well, right. these are really similar, and uh, very cool, very neat audio, and. N- they don't really match up with coyote, you know, I mean, or wolf, to be honest with you. I mean, we right. do have wolves out here in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, their their range is still very um, uh, unprecedented. You know, we, we don't know exactly the range of the wolf. Uh, we know they're here, and some are tracked. But still, it's it's very unique and, and interesting.
2: Right. Well, you know, what we do know about wolves, because somebody said that to me, too, how do you know you're not recording wolves? Yeah. and um and, and they just don't match on the um spectrum. No, they round. don't. But let's just let's play that out, okay? Well, if I have wolves in my research area, if there's if there's two wolves in our research area, then that means in 4 to 6 months there's going to be probably six wolves. And that means a year after that, you know, there's going to be, you know, 10 to 12 wolves. Um there's going to be cuz wolves eat and reproduce coyote, That's why we have so many coyotes. I'm recording what kicked off the coyotes. There's probably you know half a dozen or more coyotes, and all these little sub packs that run around out there. Um, a wolf's a bigger animal, and if you're going to have a few wolves in your research area, as much as hiking around and everything that we do in there, um, I, I, I believe okay, I probably won't get them on game camera because you know they are pretty reclusive. But I should start seeing some deer and elk carcasses, or on my game cameras, I should see a reduction of images of elk and deer. Because what do wolves eat, right? Yeah. Elk and deer, you know, or cows or whatever. They're, you know, they'll, they'll go into decimate areas. And in the last two years, I'd have to say the elk and deer population, from what I've observed, have only gone up. They they haven't gone down. I don't find carcasses. I, I, I get, I'm getting more pictures of those animals. I see more bulls. Out in the woods, so I, mm-hmm. I don't believe there's any. I'm not saying it's impossible that it could be right, but I don't believe there's wolves on our my research area. Yeah, but but it is interesting, you know. And you, and you got to look at, you got to keep your mind open to all avenues. So it does make you go research. Well, what does a wolf look like on
3: Sonic Visualizer? You know what? Well, yeah, you have to look at all avenues because you know uh, if you record in the woods at all given hours and all given times of the year. Um, and you've done this enough times, you start looking at okay. Well, this you know, and, and if you look at different um, things on on online, if you have that chance to, yep. as far uh, as what's been recorded in the past, you start looking at okay. This is what a coyote sounds like. This is what a wolf sounds like. Bear, blah blah blah. blah. When you look at where, if you look at some of these sounds on Sonic Visualizer and what is known from what these animals are capable of doing known to us, uh, some of these sounds, like what you recorded, are outside the realms of known animals, of of species that we know exist.
4: Mm-hmm. And that,
3: to me, is, that's why I love audio. Because audio, yes, it's very interpretive to to a person, but you throw it on visually, and you see the patterns there, it's very interesting. It's yeah. very, very interesting.
2: Yeah, because there is a science behind audio. That's what the software is Absolutely. for. And that's what, uh, you know, researching against known audio, I mean, you, you can you know, it, it isn't just a an interesting piece of audio you can't do nothing with. Well, we do have the te- technology to do things with that audio, to rule out things, which is uh, really neat.
3: Yeah, and I think science, uh, um, you know, science as a whole will have to look at this because <clears throat> it, uh, it, if you with the audio, um, you know these spectrographs and stuff. You can visually look at the, this audio, and you can roll out human or bear or coyote and whatnot from what we know they do, and look at the peaks and the low peaks and the hertz. <clears throat> it's it's so compelling at times for me. I'm shocked that science really hasn't jumped on this to at least try to dispel what we're recording uh, or or you're hearing. Exactly and that's why I continue to I, I encourage those out there that have um access to you know uh, recording stuff in the woods uh or in in you know these vast regions of the United States and outwards you know North America record this stuff and uh if you don't have the means to look at it visually send it to those that do um if you think it's really something solid because i mean i've, I've been sending a lot of stuff where it's been Known animals or people, even, and um, I can easily rule out Sasquatch uh, or any known at- or, or you know whatnot. Yep. Yeah, it, it's 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 it can be easy. There's other times where I've been, I've been you know in a situation where I've been sent something. Wow, that's really unique and interesting because of what I'm looking at visually. You know, forget my, what my ears are hearing may sound interesting. I've heard barn owls that sound awesome. You put it on a visualizer, and you're like, oh, it's a barn owl. It falls right in the realm, and, oh, yeah, it's pretty obvious. So, But audio to me is so compelling and, and interesting uh, that it's just one of the avenues that I love to do when I'm out in the woods uh, in the field.
2: Yeah, you know, and, and it's collaborative, too, because once you've recorded and you have that file, you have the sound in your hand, now you can transfer it and let other people listen to it. And other, you know, I, I look at it on, on Sonic Visualizer, Dave Ellis, you, you said you have. You have other people who look at the same thing and, you know, who do the same studies of listening to other animal life. It's, it, it is... Um, it, it's awesome because when you record, you have something. You have something to share. You don't have a story now. It's more than a story. It's more than more than a photograph. Right. It, it's yeah. something that you can put some science behind.
3: Yeah, something you put some science behind. It may not be definite. You know, I mean, it may not be an absolute answer, but it's com- it, it's to the point where you're like, okay, well, this is interesting, and we can we can put this in our database, uh, compile and collaborate with this and see, well, what is making these sounds? I mean, we got a sound here in, in Oregon that sounds like something in uh, Ohio, you know, and by comparing those sounds, you know, down the road, we may get an answer. Right now, you know, it's it's very open, and it's hard to uh, get anybody that really, with academia, to jump on board and go, okay, let me look at this really well and, and try and look at this scientifically, it's, yep. it's it's a, a very difficult scenario,
2: you know. And then someone else asked me, um, "Well, if you guys are separate in your groups and they, you know spend the night in these different locations, how do you know it's not somebody else in your group howling and just
1: oh, not fessing
2: up the howling?" And I got an answer for you, man. I, I I've recorded everybody in our group howling, whooping, whistling, and I have their file <laughs> on Sonic Visualizer. I know what Ben's howling signature looks like i know what my own looks like i know what my brother's looks like Um, they all fall way below the 300 hertz level no matter what different sound they make you know the throat gives off the the, you know certain frequency it's just like a signature no matter what you grab or do you know fingerprint so i i do that I, i you know i have my recording stuff set up and if some of us are trying to elicit a response i I tag it, I file it, I keep it, you know, I just don't erase that stuff. I, I keep it just in case, you know, just in case somebody tries to pull a fast one over, you know.
3: Or, or he... screws up. You know, uh, my first, you know, when I, uh, I'm, I'm an Olympic project member along with you, Chuck, mm-hmm. and my first experience, uh, the very first trip I took up to the Olympics to hang out with Derek Randall's and David Ellis and, and the guys um, was... Um, it was quite a few years ago, but we uh, what David Ellis had done was he he had set up a situation where we'd all do a a, a vocal. Uh, Cliff um, Berkman was there yeah. and did a vocal, and he recorded all of our signatures, all of our calls for future reference, yep. and he could look back and rule us out or in given um, what we're doing out in the field. And he recorded, I think, probably close to 20 to 30 individuals that would be out there at any given moment, um, and um, for for future reference, you know, so there was no confusion. Exactly. Yeah. I, I yep. found that very unique, very important, and I know David goes back constantly and does that stuff, uh, David Ellis of the Element Project, and uh, that's something that a lot of people don't do. Um, now, with these recordings out there, I mean, a lot of them, you, I mean, for the most part, you can roll out human element uh, with a lot of these recordings, the tough part is rolling out known animal life, like coyotes. or I mean, animals make weird noises, barn owls, elk, uh, you know, uh, you know, cougars. They make weird noises. Uh, for those that are not in the woods a lot or don't go out frequently, they could hear something um, that they've never heard before, one, because they don't spend enough time in the woods or just never come across this sound before. And it's uh, important to record the stuff and put it up visually and record it. To look yeah. at it later and rule out stuff and, and look at it visually and okay well that that's a cat or a, a bear
2: exactly you know and um i i found some uh one thing i got to do future study on is is i found some bobcat tracks in the snow near these ah. <laughs> i know that they make a pretty eerie vocalization um and i i got a Tag one of those files and uh, listen and get familiar with because they they are an animal that is in my area that could vocalize. Normally they don't. It's 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 uh, um you know when, when cats are in heat or in, in uh, mating seasons is when they're the loudest and make a lot of vocalizations. It's pretty rare to hear a bobcat, but since they're out there, you, you know you got to include known animals in your research area in your audio library so you can you know bounce things off of other
1: vocals.
3: Yeah, a, a, a true researcher, someone that's really enthusiastic about the subject, has to do that. I mean, it's no doubt. I mean, you can't just go out in the field and go, oh, I heard, I heard this, and it has to be a Sasquatch, because I've never heard this before. No, no, you have to know. I mean, and it, it takes a, actually a lifetime plus some to learn all of your animal vocals, known animal vocals. Um, there are a few out there that are just, you know, Keep, some people get lucky going out there and they hear something so unique and record it in the right scenario. And that's the thing too, though, is that you know these recordings are unique. Like what you recorded, uh, I find it very interesting. Um, I've got some interesting audio. Uh, the Limb project got interesting audio. The Tilma group's got interesting audio. There's many other groups out there and individuals that have interesting audio. It, it takes you being out there to record this stuff. Right. Uh, you know it really does. And and where it leads, who knows? But it takes you being out there to record this stuff, and c- the comparisons that I have found in certain um, areas are just very compelling and interesting. And, and that's why I love audio in general. I just love audio, I really do. I love going out there and finding impressions and tracks. But audio, when you look at it signature uh, visually, is just com- it's just awesome. Exactly. Yep. Although um, a good a good footprint with five toes is always fun to come across. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean I've, how often do you come across those? Not very often. Nope, but when not you very do often. not very often. I mean how often have you, Chuck, come across a five foot uh impression? I mean let me ask you this, Chuck. Have you ever been you ever felt that you've been hoaxed? Um, no.
2: When I, I very to be honest with you, when I um first started getting into this right before I, I ever met ben and i was in this research area uh, i i had later learned that ben had always been going into this area before we were friends Before we even met i went into this area and then in talking to him after the fact that after hearing things i learned that he researches in that area so in the back of my mind i'm, I'm always like I wonder if that was him knocking i wonder if that was him you know and i, and I didn't know it and i didn't ask him you know i mean I wonder if i'm wonder if we're hearing each other you know um not that anybody's trying to pull one over on me but maybe i am misinterpreting what somebody else is doing as um as a knock or a howl and so you know that's you know i got the idea of i'm going to record other people's howls and later after getting to know ben and, and uh, knowing his uh call blasting capabilities and, the, and uh, howls that he makes uh i know it wasn't him hoaxing um or not hoaxing but i wasn't misinterpreting him doing call blasting and then i thought it was a the real bigfoot because i didn't know that he was over there at that time you know i i used to wonder about those things when I first met Ben. But then when you start to know people and you understand their their practices and what they're doing out there and when they're doing it, I realized no way, no way was I misinterpreting what he was doing as a Bigfoot. Um, Now, other people come up there, you know, know, and that's the bad thing, is when you share your research area, you know, there's been a few new people who come out there. um, And uh, there's one person um, I've come across uh, in particular, that um, has presented some evidence that I know they fabricated. Um, mm-hmm. or, or maybe they forgot they fabricated it and didn't right. remember, you know, out there. And, uh, you know, that's kind of a bummer because not only do you got to keep track of, you know, the animals that are out there, um, now, now you got to kind of keep track of people who are out there. Um, right so whenever a new person goes out there and they say they, they've been out there and hey I was out in your area you know, blah 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 I like to know you know kind of how big they are what size shoe they wear and you know because um, I, I don't want to track other people around you know I, I'm five foot nine I have a 12 inch boot and you measure from a tape so anybody taller than me is going to have a bigger foot and, and a lot of times I come across 14 inch impressions no toes um, but I'm thinking, well, man, this has got to be somebody with a bigger foot than me. And then, mm-hmm. I, then, then in the back of my memory goes, oh well, yeah, well, this person sometimes comes out here, and that person comes, out, and they're all bigger than me. And now I'm probably tracking somebody else. And that, that's the tough part when you don't have a team of people, and you just have people going out there independently. You, you end up tracking each other,
3: you know. Right. Yeah, you know, recently you were out with your family out snowshoeing, and you heard some interesting knocks. Uh, you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, yeah,
2: you know, it was on uh, New Year's Day, and I um, wasn't going to do any researching. I wanted to go snowshoeing, so we rented some snowshoes for my son. My wife and I already have some, and uh, we went up to this, uh, it, it's a known ski park. They plow the road right to the parking lot um, to go up this thing. It's like a, oh, three and a half miles up to the peak of one of these little mountain peaks um, backside of Ashford, and there's a parking lot there. You know, you can park, and then you start snowshoeing up, and there's a restroom there. It's really, it's a great tourist place. You know, a lot of people go there. And, um, you know, my son was running a little bit late, so we got up there late. And uh, we got there just before noon, and the parking lot's full. There's like 45 cars in the parking lot. And so I know that the snowshoe trail, and it's a uh, um, organized. You can't, you know, back country in there. They, they won't let you. Um, and besides, it's pretty wooded, and it's tough to backcountry snowshoe in that kind of terrain. It's, you got to stay on the old logging roads, and they're pretty steep, and you have great view. But the parking lot's full, so I, I got pretty mad because, you know, that's what I wanted to do that day, is do some snowshoeing, and so i got to work my way back down out of that ridge. And then I remember um, there was a couple of logging roads that we passed now, um, when they plow the road, they form these big monster, you know, four-foot-tall snow banks on roads that they don't plow. And so mm-hmm. as we were working our way back down from the mountain, um, I saw one of those roads that I had been on before that was just a little more than a quarter-mile long, but the elevation changes, you know, probably 500 feet. So it's a pretty good little trek, and I knew that there was a viewpoint few up there. And so this is away from the snow park, and this is away, a you know, this is on the whole other side of the ridge from where the 45 cars were, um, snowshoeing, so there's nobody over there. But I knew that this road, you know, and, and it was untouched, fresh powder, got a view, let's make the best of it, let's go up there. So we put our packs on, leave my rig at the bottom, we start snowshoeing on up, you know, and we get to the top, and we take our packs off and everything, just kind of relax, and and visit, and um, I am knelt down to help my son get his snowshoe off. And then up in the timber, it, it, we're in an area where it's an old logging platform, so it's a flat spot. And it used to be where they would bring the logs down to the trucks, load them, and the trucks would make their way on down you know, on the mountain. And from that all around us is a clear cut. And as you get up higher, probably 300 yards, that's where the timber starts again. That was the end of their cut. And now you're back into the big trees and stuff. And right at the edge of that tree line, we heard this distinct knock. My wife and my son heard it the best because my head was down undoing his uh, snowshoes. And um, we heard it, and I was like, wow, you know, we just kept our eyes on that. Um, and, of course, you stare into an area, you know, you're hoping mm-hmm. for the next knock, nothing happens. So we get we get bored with that, and we start turning the other way back towards the south where the view was. And, um, you know, commenting on the on the view and the nice day, because it was crystal clear out in the sunny. And it's probably 20 minutes after that first knock, we hear the knock again. Um, this time it moved kind of to the left uh, of where we heard it before, or at least that's what our ears were telling us. And then um, I just remembered that I had a pair of binoculars in my backpack, because um, we'd been up there now for and yeah, probably getting on to like an hour, hour and a half, and there's nothing else really to do because that's the end of the road. And we are debating on make, making our way back down to the vehicle when I remembered I had my binoculars. And so I pull them out, and I says, oh, no, we're staying here longer.
4: <laughs>
1: so, so we
2: sat there, and, you know, as long as my arms could take, because, you know, holding a pair of binoculars up to your eyes takes a little effort when it's longer than a few minutes. And
1: mm-hmm.
2: Oh, I didn't see nothing, you know, but it was um, very interesting. It, 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 I mean, it was... Um, just as good as knock as I've ever heard that I thought would have come from a squash. I mean, it sounded like the baseball bat against a tree, Um, nice and loud. And when you look into the woods, you know, with the binoculars, there's not any sunlight penetrating into the forest. So I couldn't see into the tree line that far, maybe best I can interpret, you know, 20 yards and then it gets dark. You know, there's no more sunlight in there. And I'm looking at it from, you know, Almost 350 yards away with my binoculars, so you know, it's tough to see that far. But I was hoping something maybe would have came to the edge of the tree line to get a better look at us because we were brightly colored and talking, and we were out of place in this huge clear cut. You know, I mean, you could we were obviously stood out. And I was just kind of yeah. hoping something would have seen us and took an interest and came to the tree line, but it didn't happen, or at least I didn't see it happen.
3: Yeah. You know, and that's one of the things, too, though, most of these these encounters, they happen when you least expect them. Uh, I'm not saying that you had a Bigfoot encounter, but you heard some interesting knocks. But Mm -hmm. most of these encounters happen with people doing average things, you know, daily, um, hiking or camping. Uh, You know, people like to think that uh, because they're researching, they're going to get an encounter. And I find that most times when you're doing just average things, Average really, uh that you get these these possible encounters and these you know like these knocks and stuff. So, what these knocks are are uh, open ended. I mean, you don't you didn't see a sasquatch hitting a tree or banging on its chest or anything like that. You just in an area where it was interesting because of where you were at and and what you heard. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. You know, and I was I wasn't even squashing. I was this wasn't even in one of the areas that I research in. I might add it to my um, research area so it's outside of my area of where I go because you can only really cover so much ground consistently, you know. Um, so I, and I just took note, hey, I heard knocks at this time. This was the moon phase, and, you know, if I get a chance to go there again or set up recording devices there when the snow completely melts that high, you know, I probably will. I'll probably do some nighttime audio, Leave a leave a parabolic dish up there overnight and, you know, see if anything new happens from that. From that mountain, that hillside. So,
3: we'll right. see. So, what's down the road here? Uh, we're down to uh, about a you know a minute and a half here. What's down the road for for Chuck and his uh, you know endeavors?
2: Well, you know, I'm
3: going to keep at the uh, the game cam thing. I'm going to
2: keep um, maintenance going on my 14 cameras. I'm going to you know keep checking them every three months. or rotate that. Hopefully, I can get some good pictures, or hopefully. On one of my trips in i'm going to come across some tracks or or you know maybe hey even have an encounter you know so that that's going to keep me busy in that um during the day stuff at night you know now that i have that uh thermal unit to put on top of my camper um and it does it looks just like my air conditioner all my stuff's white on top of the camper and this uh, atax 360 is in a white housing sits right up on top and it just looks like another bump in the roof um Except for it's the highest bump, you know.
1: Uh
2: If you don't know what you're looking at, a a person wouldn't know what it was up there because it's pure white like everything else. And I'm going to, I I really believe that sitting in that spot overnight, um, if something is coming in knocking, um, when we all turn in, it's going to happen again. Um, Mm -hmm. High probability that it's going to happen again. And this time I'll be recording the entire night. I don't have to be awake, but my camera does. It's going to record, so I'm really hoping, you know, this next year I I get a good uh, thermal recording of whatever it is that's knocking. And I have my recording devices up, so, you know, if if I record knocking at, you know, 145 a.m. and I record a bear or an elk or something else in that area at 145 a.m., you know, that's going to give me something else to think about. Um, But this is how you rule out what's going on out there. I'm hoping. Yeah. In, I'm hoping instead I record knocking and I videotape a thermal image of a biped coming through there. That's what I'm hoping happens.
3: Yeah. Well, Chuck, um, you know, wish you all the best. I know that we'll be collaborating down the road, and I wish you all the best. I really do. I love your endeavors and ideas, and um, you're you're a pioneer with some of your ideas in this field in the area that you're working in. Because I love Pacific Northwest. I love some of the areas you're working in. So. Good luck. We'll talk to you down the road and hope you join us uh, on the show later on. Great. I hope
2: next time I talk I, I have something to share with that, my thermal project. And, you know, before I hang up, I, I want to give a shout-out yeah. to a couple of guys. You know, if, if they've listened the whole two hours, they deserve a shout-out.
1: <laughs> you know, <laughs> Ben Freed,
2: who uh, formed the Bigfoot little Group, um, I learned a lot from him. Uh, Darren Locke is a new guy. He's been coming out from Bremerton. Um, you know, and what I like about Darren, he comes out, he just listens. He doesn't try to make us rethink what we're doing. He's just listening to what we've done and learning. And yeah. then uh, my brother, Mel Madsen, he comes out with me. He's got my back when I'm out there in the woods checking my cameras. So um, and Raymond and Trudy Hubley, they live out in LB, and I always Facebook asking them the snow report out there, and it kind of determines what vehicle I'm taking. So I just want to give those guys a shout-out and uh, Absolutely. appreciate the
3: friendships. Yeah. Well, thanks, Chuck. We got to run here. Thank you for joining us, and we thank you, for everybody, uh, tonight for uh, logging in and listening to us wherever you're at. Okay. Have a great night. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.